We'll hear argument now on number 00201, the New York Times Company versus Jonathan Tassini. Uh, Mr. Tribe. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The parties and both courts below agree on at least two things. First, that Section 201C uh, represents a compromise that assures freelance authors that they may control and exploit their individual contributions to collective works like newspapers and magazines, uh, in new anthologies and serializations, in screenplays, other derivative works, unless they've expressly transferred that right. Parties are also agreed, as are both courts below, that 201C assures the publication of collective works, that the publisher of such collective works uh, has the aggregate right to publish any article in the collective work, both in publishing the collective work itself, of course, but also in publishing that article, quote, as part of any revision of that collective work, again, unless there has been an express transfer of the right. Now, the principal impetus uh, for this measure uh, was a rather strong wish to undo several quite notorious rulings, like that of the Southern District of New York in the Geisel uh, case in 1968, which, of course, involved the legendary Dr. Seuss and denied him the right to stop the unauthorized distribution of toy dolls that were derived from cartoons that he had published decades earlier. Uh, There is no hint at all in the history of this measure, and I think no hint in the way it's written, uh, that microfilm, for example, which had been in use for some 40 years at the time this measure was passed, and which people used to make copies of individual articles more often than to make copies of entire cumbersome periodicals, uh, was seen by anyone as a problem to be addressed or solved by 201. See. You say people use to make copies. You mean the ultimate user? The ultimate end user. Yes, but, but the, but the person who produced the microfilm or the microfiche produced the entire work. It produced the article as part of the entire work. Right. Now, to be sure, when a person went went to the machine, he would only look to, uh, uh, right. as, to the as, article that he was interested in. As do we, Justice Scalia, in Nexus and in the CD-ROMs, the entire text, with the exception of certain graphics that cannot be handled by ASCII, uh, is put in. When you would look at a newspaper on microfilm, you would get the whole page. You, you would probably want to single out a particular article, but it was the whole page that appeared to you. That's right. And in this, in this case, uh, you basically conduct a search under the algorithms that are used by Nexus, conduct a search of the entire periodical, whether you call for but a particular not, topic. But it's not all in one piece, is it? Well, the, the way, the way it's, it's in virtual. It's, it's, in, it's certainly not the... It's not a newspaper that we're used to. You don't, you can't drink your coffee to it or wrap your fish in it. But that really is a red herring. Well, but I suppose that it has removed the photographs and the ads. It's been disaggregated. And what you see are the individual articles from a particular. At any one time. But with a very simple prompt of about 15 characters, you can get the entire periodical. But at least in, uh, let's talk about the nexus for a minute. You don't, you don't see the ads and the photographs and all that, but you can pull out an entire article that it appeared. You, you in certainly Congress. can. That's why um, we're now. I assume that the publisher uh, can enter a contract with an independent author to cover the subsequent use in data base material. And yes, and for decades, probably the publisher does that today. Well, anytime. sometimes what's happened, Justice O'Connor. It appears that for at least 20 years, um, people have assumed, because no one complained of this practice, that the standard contract was not limited to the print medium. Now, as of 1995, for example, the New York Times made clear they would not make contracts with people for print only. I notice, though, that the head of the copyright division has... Uh, at least written a letter that looks like she thinks the court below was absolutely right. That's right. On the basis of a display argument that is disclaimed by the Tassini respondents that wasn't made below and that doesn't make sense under the statute because quite clearly 
if we are involved in reproduction and distribution, display is covered in the intersection of those. It's not, I think, a serious argument. Uh, you notice the Solicitor General did not decide to come into this case, but you're right about the Register of Copyright. Uh, however, that's Mr. Tribe, does that view of the Register of Copyright relate at all to one effort that was made in the 76 Act and to give the independent artisan, the artist, the author, mm-hmm. more muscle vis-a-vis the publisher or the, the well, patron than before? It, it, it's an interesting theory, Justice Ginsburg, but I've tried to imagine how, by carving this pie into two pieces, one could give well, older of the other more muscle. One, one could pay. That's well, in 1995, I was saying a minute ago, the New York Times said, we're not going to run articles print only. It would be kind of pointless now when almost everything has to go onto the Internet or be preserved in some other way other than print. And they said that our contract will automatically cover print and electronic rights. And what's interesting is that the royalties didn't change a cent after that. I think it's a kind of belief in magic that leads some people to think that if there is an inequity of bargaining power, it will be solved by creating two estates rather than one. In fact, in the mid-1980s, it's interesting that the respondents went to Congress, the National Writers' Union went to Congress, and tried to get a measure much more modest than this one, a measure that would say that when there is a demonstrable inequity in bargaining power, an unconscionable arrangement, and when that's shown by individualized proof, there could be a transfer of rights. Here, they want a wholesale global transfer, which I don't think is necessarily going to change anything for the future, but could have very serious impact on existing writings whose authors and heirs and assigns are going to be extremely difficult to locate. Well, so far as the future is concerned, Mr. Chai, we're just talking about money, aren't we? I mean, the people can negotiate one way or the other, however. That's right, right. And all I'm saying is there's not any particular reason to think the deals will come out very differently. But there... Well, these people evidently think it will. I, well, no, I, they're, they're, I they're think, Mr. Scalia, that they think quite rightly that they can get a lot of money to settle a case in which... If we were to lose, we and many other publishers around the country would have no choice but to engage in defensive deletions of a lot of material that could otherwise expose us to massive statutory damages Mm -hmm. under the copyright laws. That's why a number of Pulitzer Prize-winning historians have said they're afraid of what it will do to their research. That's why the American Library Association, which is an amicus on their side, has conceded that it's awfully difficult to find these people, and there may be an adverse impact. Even the Register of Copyright, in the letter to which you refer, Justice O'Connor, said, you know, there may be a serious, there may be an impact on scholarship and research. And I think that's an understatement. Uh, but, well, for one thing, there's this three-year statute of limitations, which will cut. Which I don't know that that would help a lot, Justice Ginsburg. And the reason is that keeping something on Nexus or in CD-ROMs that you have in circulation after it has been determined to be infringing and letting people potentially have access to it in which the download might be an infringement uh, would be a new act. So I don't think the statute of limitations will solve the problem. But there are it's hard for me to see that that's going to be the, the effect in the real world because, after all, these authors have an interest in exposure. It's just like a lot of people who now no longer have to be artists for hire, all that anyway, because they will give the copyright right. to the patron. They want people I, to get to know who they are. I think that's the irony, Justice Ginsburg. I think that the erasures of a lot of these things will not be in the interest of the people whose work may be erased, but someone who wrote an article in 1980 um, and maybe was 60 years old at the time and maybe isn't around at the moment, uh, There are a lot of people like that. We don't know how many. We don't know how many articles, but the U.S. News and World Report has already decided in anticipation because there's no, they think, no analytic difference between microfilm and some of these products. Certainly the GPO CD-ROM, which is a photographic copy, is not different. They have stopped putting their work on microfilm. The line-drawing problem here, if I may say, is one of several reasons why recalibrating the balance that Congress struck is a particularly inappropriate 
job for the court. Mr. Tribe, can I pursue this damages question? I mean, as far as ripping out everything that's on uh, on the uh, uh, systems already, uh, that certainly need not be done by court decree. No, a court can say, uh, you know, uh, taking equity into account, we're not going to issue a, uh, such an injunction. So the question would be, your clients would be compelled to erase all of this stuff because of the damages they would have to pay. What would the damages be well, if, if, as you say, it's very small. It was worthless. Well, under 504. <laughs> if it was worthless, the damages would be negligible. You would think that, but under 504, damages are not measured by the harm to the person who sues. There is a provision that says that they can take the, get the benefit of a presumption that all of our gross income was attributable to their contribution. And the theory of that would, I suppose, be — they don't need a theory because the statute says it — but the theory would be that all of the work we put in electronic form would not have been worth anything if it looked like Swiss cheese with Re stuff missing. Rebuttable but or irrebuttable? It's rebuttable. But they can also elect statutory damages, which can go up to $30,000 violation. And if some court accepts the Nimmer theory of multiple violations per infringement, it would be more. Even if not, it could be — the statutory violation applies only to willful uh, violations. No, it, it's no? more if it's willful, but there is a statutory provision in any event, and it what, would become what's, willful. What's the non-willful uh, uh, amount? I think it's a sliding scale, Justice Scalia, and I think there is discretion to set it. It can be very low. I think as low as $250 and as high as over 10000 But I, I have to say I don't remember for sure. But the point is, there are something like 100,000 freelance articles just on Nexus. There are 18,000 journals on Nexus. You don't have to multiply 100,000 or 50,000 or 20,000 by a very large number to know that a good business judgment for a lot of these companies is going to be who wants the litigation. And you couldn't put together class actions to solve the problem easily, given Amchem and Ortiz, because of the incredible variability of the contracts of the — some of them, for example, will have registered the copyright in the article uh, within three years of its publication and then be eligible for statutory damages. Others won't. There will be plaintiff-specific uh, defenses, statutes of limitation and latches. You mentioned the statute of limitations, Justice Ginsburg. I, it seems to me that, of course, that is not a reason to read the statute no, it incorrectly. Right. But so I think we go back to that for just one second, sure, because I'd like to go back to where Justice O'Connor, I think, started. The the part that I'm having difficulty understanding, and I don't actually understand this, mm -hmm. is what precisely, precisely, say in the case of Nexus, was the event that you think the other side is saying, change the work from a revised work to a new work. In particular, I'm thinking, say, at 10 in the morning on May, 10, May 11th, uh, 2001, the Washington Post has a piece of paper. It's called the Washington Post. And then in a analogous form, that piece of paper is in its computer. Mm -hmm. And then something happens. That is, there's a transfer of that information over to Nexus. Well, and what — I'd like you to focus right on that, because what do you — I want to know what event in that series of events well, on that morning uh, we're talking about as being the copying, the unlawful That copying. moves beyond revision. Yes, I, in their view, in I your would, opinion. I, I assure you, Justice Breyer, I'd love to know at least as much as you would, and I hope Mr. Gold will All right, well, then let me give you a little if, bit no, further, because let me let imagine me, what it might be. It okay. might be this. It might be that there is a person in the Washington Post who pushes a button called send. And at that point, what is sent is not the electronic and analog of the Washington Post's several pages, but rather a few articles from the Post. And then a little later in the day, a few more are sent. Uh, but and then a little prior, later, a few prior. more are sent. And when they arrive in Nexus, they are nowhere stored in a form that is in any sense analogous to that page or several pages in the Washington Post, but rather is in a large computer where they are mixed yes. Uh, with Sorry. the hunting fishing journal and everything right. else. Justice Breyer, yeah. the record is completely unambiguous that nothing like that happens. Does what happens happen. is that the 
computer text itself, the very same computer text that goes to the printing office so that the New, the New York Times then arrives at your front desk. Is the Post. Well, the Post. That's fine. There, uh, I'll take the I'll take the Washington Post. Washington Post. Washington Star. We can take our paper. The Washington Post. The they all follow the same protocol. There is a computer text, and that text is ASCII readable. That means it can be put in computer form. And one version, one copy. It's not even a version. It, the identical thing goes to the printing facility. And with an identification code for this day's edition of the Washington Post, is that yes, the identification absolutely. All code? The, the, the identification code that so that is, so that when you pull it up, what you get is the whole Washington Post. If you ask for the Washington, ah, you have well, to wait, go out me, of your out of your way to I, to ask for. Well, I, have I it be compiled. First, I wanted to first describe what happens when it gets there, and then I'll try to say what happens at the other end when. Well, I, I want to know what's sent. Is, is it what is what is sent what? is computer data, the whole Washington Post, and it's put before it goes there. They add advertisements and some other graphics, and then it goes to the assembly room, and then it's delivered and put on newsstands. That addition of the ads and the graphics, which are not ASCII handleable. Forget about the ads and the graphics. Right. That addition is not made in the version that goes to Nexus. Nexus processes that unitary computer data. It goes instantaneously, not in driblets, and it doesn't go article by article. And I could, so, so Each, I, I could look to the opinion of the district court to find that, because it might that's very right. technically turn on whether the transmission to Nexus is the transmission at one instant of time of the electronic analog, and I chose the post perfect purposely because it's not involved in mm-hmm. some other aspects of the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 it might turn on whether that whole Electronic analog of the entire paper is transmitted instantly at one instance over to Nexus, where later on they use electronic scissors and cut it up, or whether article by article at different times it's transmitted so that there is no no, cutting There's not a shred of evidence, not a whisper that suggests that they're first disassembling the paper into articles and then whisking it over. It is true that the computer text registers each article and identifies it, just as it identifies pages, and there is a file for each article. But a file is really a conceptual thing here. It's not that they have a little file and they have the article stuffed in it. Uh, And the result of all this is that the technology shouldn't obscure what's happening. What's happening is that something that is as close to the Washington Post for that day as it could be given this medium, appears in the Nexus computer. Well, Mr. Mr. Todd, despite, it, despite how it is transmitted, mm-hmm. if the whole thing goes immediately, right. then at Nexus, is it disaggregated and stored in a way that no. what one finds is individual No, articles? Justice O'Connor, what happens is... That's odd, because when I've used something well, like that, I've gone to an author's name or a... Right subject matter and tried to retrieve an individual article, they not think the whole newspaper. No, of course not, although some people want the whole newspaper, and you can get it by saying date, paren, 328-201. Well, I but let me answer it's your fair question. to say that Nexus at least strips out the ads, strips out the graphics Nexus and the photos. Nexus doesn't strip out the ads. Well, somebody's doing it because the ads are just what not you added. get is the article. First of all, you get the whole thing in the GPO CD-ROM. Secondly, Nexus doesn't subtract the ads. They're just not added by the Washington Post, although I'm not sure that, that matters. Third, they, they, the they, point, They're not added, but they are in the, in the original version right, of the That's Post. why this is a revision. We're not claiming it's the same thing, but it is awfully close. And if this isn't a revision, it's hard to know what would be. The point I want to make is that with res- once the computer has all of the digital information, it indexes it according to key words, and among those words are the date and an author, and the data is sort of scattered to yeah, the magnetic Yeah, but isn't that wind. the point, Mr. Tribe, at which there is no longer any functional difference 
between the way Nexus stores and the Nexus subscriber calls up on the one hand uh, and simply a freestanding reprint of the article which anybody can, in effect, walk into a store and buy on the other hand. There are several important differences, Justice Souter. One, the search inside Nexus is always of whole periodicals, and that's undisputed. Two, you don't... But now, I don't understand what you mean. If I want an article uh, by Smith, I understand that I can search for an article by Smith, not for the entire New York Times or Washington Post in which Smith's article occurred. I understand, Justice Souter, but it is undisputed that the way they do it, it's more efficient, is that they will take the intersection of all of the indices you want, and they will search the entire periodical by periodical to find the article. They don't uh, — it's not, after all, a thinking machine. It's — it's a, a dumb operation. But more important, you're not charged for the article the way you would be at a copy service. You're charged for search time. And that's the time for searching entire periodicals. Okay. Also, and, if I, and if I want to get the article cheap — I identify the article very specifically so that the search time will be less rather than more, and the functional uh, effect is that I buy the article. Well, when you get it, you get it as part of the revision, and that's... Well, no, but I don't. If if I get, maybe, maybe, maybe you're telling me something in in fact that I shouldn't dispute, but if I want Smith's article... What comes out of the machine is Smith's article, not the entire edition I of the Justice Post. Souter, but if you permit me, let me say why I nonetheless think you're getting it as part of the revised periodical. And the reason is this. It's very important, so please let me stress it. If it were the case that the only way you could comply with 201C was that when you ask for an article, you get, whether you want it or not, the whole periodical in which the article appears — that would satisfy the concern you're expressing. But if that was the only way you could do it, the statute would be incoherent because it says that you may reproduce and distribute the contribution as part of a revision, or you may distribute the revision itself or a later element in the series. And if it were the case that you have to get the whole thing, then we would have erased from the statute the key compromise word. All right. I I will accept that. But it may then simply be that the price of coherence, as you put it, uh, is a limitation on the right of the the periodical or of the collection and a corresponding recognition of the right of the author. That may be what coherence demands. But wouldn't that be for Congress, Justice Souter? If that is is a necessary — if that is a — is the only way to avoid, for practical purposes, reading the author's copyright protection right out of the statute, then I would suppose that's what Congress necessarily has provided. But, Justice Souter, to say that it reads that protection out of the statute is hard to square with the fact that these authors, in undisputed testimony, themselves said that when they tried to syndicate their work or serialize it or sell it in some way, there was never any evidence that its appearance in this archival context on Nexus or the CD-ROMs ever made the slightest difference. They can fully exploit their individual work. The argument is that we should be able, since Congress said so, to reproduce and distribute not just a revision of the composite work, but the article as part of that revision. And that cannot well, mean... You played the ideas you played their song beyond their permission. Tell me, Mr. Tribe, why... If it is wrong to think of what's going on here, if you put it in very simple terms, as taking the article that the Post has received, to put it in the Post, and just putting it in a much, much larger journal. Is that when you give it to Nexus, isn't that what happens? No, no, Justice Ginsburg. It's when you bind a book and put it on a library shelf, you could say it's part of a huge book. The fact is that this is a huge database, and the Second Circuit's suggestion that we are treating that whole database as the revision uh, is completely wrong. We've said all along that the revision is simply the digitized version 
of the periodical. That digitized version is one that contains that all of the various exist, articles. Sep- that does not exist separately. That does not exist by itself. It's well, part of this big mass of, uh, of that's data. That's the nature of the medium. Nothing exists but separately. You're, you're inventing, in you're reve- you're inventing no, a revision no, that has no, no real-world existence. You're saying there's just this part of, uh, Justice, of, of, of the data which is scattered all through. I don't know how, how they scatter. Justice Scalia, Congress was well aware. They talked about disks. They talked about any medium. They talked about machines having to read the stuff. They knew about the computer. 1978 wasn't that long ago. This law was written to make sense in the computer context. It would have been thoroughly feasible, would it not, to send over the Washington Post with identification that would only refer to this edition of the Washington Post. But the statute In which case you would have no problem in the world. You have sent over the the Washington Post. The problem in the world we'd have, Justice Scalia, is the world doesn't want only You're whole saying together. that's well, — and Congress — It may did, well be, so pay for it then. No, I mean, that, 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 just, that just proves that we're it's paying better for to it. do it the way you're doing it, commercially better, but that doesn't well, prove I you think should we're have paying to pay for it. for it the existing royalty. And secondly, Congress said that we could publish, as part of that compromise, that we could publish the individual article as part of the revision. And I'm saying — that carries this implication, and it doesn't destroy their copyright. Suppose you, you had an old fogey editor who didn't want to use any of this newfangled stuff. So what he does is he, he, he cuts out each article in a magazine, each separate article, and he sends it over to some separate library. He sends over the whole thing, but it's sent over article by article, and it is knowingly to be uh, — uh, to be indexed in that library that he's sending it to by the article rather than by the Washington Post of the day. Would you say that somehow uh, this is just a revision? Probably not. Probably not. Because I I don't see why this is any different in substance. It it differs in a lot of ways. We are sending over the entire periodical, and people can find — My case, too. The whole thing's sent over. But But it's sent over article by article, and it is indexed by the article. In, in, in a whole mass of articles from every magazine in the country. Now, would that be okay if it was done in print? Would they be charged for the articles or charged for the time it takes to search the whole library? Oh, you think that's the difference? I think it makes an important difference. These things are also, if you look at the promotional materials, they're promoted as complete periodicals, hundreds of volumes of the most widely read periodicals. I think I should reserve... Very well, Mr. Tribe. Uh, Mr. Gold, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please uh, the Court, uh, I'd like to begin by addressing the part of uh, the discussion that uh, just concluded. Uh, Section uh, 201C uh, and uh, its uh, cognate uh, sections, 103 and uh, the uh, definition sections, uh, as has been uh, discussed, distinguish between uh, the author's copyright in his individual contributed work which he retains when he contributes it to a collective work, and uh, the uh, collective work copyright owners, uh, this language couldn't be more cumbersome, uh, namely the publishers, uh, uh, copyright in the uh, collective work as a whole. Uh, The statute couldn't be clearer, we believe, uh, in the proposition that the collective works copyright owner has no copyright in the individual article in these freelance situations where there is the separate author copyright. Uh, It seems to us that the clearest uh, lesson from that 
is that if the publisher uh, were in print terms to uh, publish reprints of individual articles uh, and uh, treat them separately, that would be uh, an infringing action. The publisher would be exploiting the article as an article and without any authorization. So suppose that the Times published um, uh, bound volumes of its papers, but it had an index in the front of it, maybe it does, uh, with all of the author's names and all of the subject's name. And then the other thing it did was that it had tabs uh, so that you could easily find the, find the index. And, uh, I, I take it that would be a permitted revision just because it's in paper? Well, if in, in paper terms uh, the Times were to publish uh, a version uh, of what they electronically uh, provide to Nexus, article by article, by, by the way, in file, each article in a file. Uh, but if they were to publish that as a coherent whole, the Reader's Condensed May 1st New York Times, uh, I think there's a very strong argument that uh, that's a revised version uh, of, of the paper. Well, but elect- what we're saying point, electronically, so that's that all this it. is, is it? Well, I'm saying there's a fair argument, but we're, we're miles away from no, that fair argument. Take Justice Kennedy's precise example. It's not just the indexed New York Times of this date, but the Times publishes a massive volume, all of the New York Times for, for, you know, from 1950 to 1990 with an index in it. Would you consider that just a revision of the one edition of the New York Times uh, for which the Times had the copyright? I, I do not think that's a I wouldn't think that either. Revision. But it also but, could be a later all, collective work I, in the same series. Uh, the the question here, though, uh, at least there is an argument that that's a revision and not an exploitation of uh, the copyrighted author's article as uh, an article. But my point, my beginning point, is that as I understand uh, uh, Mr. Tribe's argument, uh, if the Times were to publish an article uh, uh, as an article uh, saying this was part of the New York Times uh, and offer it uh, on the market, make copies and uh, offer it to anyone who wants to buy it, uh, that that would be part of the publisher's 201C right at that point there's nothing on that theory. There is nothing left of the fact that the author is the copyright holder in the article. I, we thought that was the starting point, that the one thing that is plain is that uh, the collective work copyright holder cannot exploit the article as an article as a separate freestanding work. And in the end, what uh, the Nexus system does is exploit articles on an article-by-article article basis. They're drawn from hundreds of uh, collective works. Mr. Gold, it would help me if you would identify for me precisely when the infringement occurs. Let me just take the very first step. Supposing the New York Times sends an email to Nexus and attaches an exhibit, and on that exhibit is an entire copy of all the stories in the paper that day. Is that an infringement? No, I I don't think that uh, if you take a particular view of uh, what the revised work is at that stage, 
whether uh, there is an infringement uh, seems to me questionable. But and the reason it would not be an infringement is because translating it from the paper media to the electronic media would be a revision. Is that correct? Yeah, Just as though you put it in break. As long as a, as a collective work. Right. But what is done here? Well, I, so that, that step isn't an infringement. Now, when does the infringement occur and by whom? The It seems to us there are uh, a, a series of infringements. Uh, the first That's is... Like the first one and by yes. whom? Right the first is that the... Uh, articles are coded, uh, the article files are coded and then uh, uh, inserted into uh, an overall database of millions uh, and from the latest numbers, billions. And you're going to have to tell me why is that different from putting a photostat or a, or a microfiche of a New York Times in a particular place in a big library? Because you're not putting uh, a microfiche of the New York Times as a New York Times. What no, you're but put- you're putting a revision. Yeah. No. What uh, you just said was a revision. No, you're putting articles uh, that were part of the revision into an undifferentiated uh, mess. And in that sense, you're creating uh, a quite different uh, work. Those articles... I thought your complaint alleges contributory infringement by the New York Times the minute it sends it to Mead Data Central. I thought that was the allegation in your complaint, well, that that's a contributory infringement because the New York Times knows what they're going to do with it. They're going to disaggregate it and have it available. Now, is that the allegation or not? Well, that's, that's the allegation. Well, I time because the, But my point was that it, uh, by putting, they're not sending a, uh, a, an integrated New York Times to Nexus. They're sending disaggregated articles, which will be further disaggregated. But and even, well, even if they the s- other side disputes that, Mr. Tribe says that's not it. We send exactly what we had. But be that as it may, is it not your allegation in the complaint that whatever the New York Times sends is a contributory infringement? Yes. Okay. Now, if that is so, why should it make a difference whether the Times sends it uh, in in an arguably aggregated form or an arguably disaggregated form? Isn't the real point, or from from your from the standpoint of your case, that the that the newspaper is particip- participating in a process? the end point of which is disaggregation and access to disaggregated materials. Yes. And if that's the case, then why isn't it, on, on your theory, the, an infringement, no matter what the format in which the Times uh, or any newspaper sends the material to Nexus? My, my only point in making, uh, in stating that the form uh, of the transmission, namely in article files, is that it, it that is part and parcel of what you've just stated, namely an okay. overall process to create a, 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 a set of disaggregated article files. Then, then, I should, then I should think your answer to Justice Stevens' question would be the infringement on the part of the newspaper takes place at the moment of transmission. Uh, I, I, I think that the, in, in those terms, uh, that's true. And I, I thought I did answer it that way in the in the sense that it is 
the nature of uh, the uh, the nature of the disaggregation and uh, assigning each article uh, to an article file, which is part and parcel of this overall. Well, I'm still mean? not clear of, of your answer to Justice Stevens' question. When does the first infringement take place? It sounds as if you're saying the infringement takes place when the Times pushes the button to remove all the ads and the graphics, or when the Times pushes the button to enable uh, a searcher to pull up the article by author. And, and that, that seems very strange to me. When is the first in act of infringement. Forget about con- contribution to the tort. When is the first infringing act? When, when you say forget about uh, contributing to, uh, I, I'm just not clear on what you're asking. Uh, the well, there's a there's a there's a tort feaser. And, and persons who contribute to the tort. When is the tort first committed? The tort of infringement. The it, this is, uh, I guess, uh, as I see it, uh, an act that is uh, the first step in a, con- a continuing process of. Uh, infringement. The the time. When can I say, "Aha! There's an infringement." <laughs> the it, it seems to to me that in in practical terms, uh, the first act of uh, infringement of. Uh, any substance is the uh, uh, cre- the putting of the uh, article files as separate article files on uh, the Nexus database and making it available in this system uh, to be accessed. Printed out, downloaded, and so on. Well, I understand that, but why, since the newspaper knows that that is what is supposed to happen, that's, that in fact is what is called for in its contract with Nexus, why doesn't the newspaper uh, infringe at the moment when it takes the first step in that process, which I suppose would be the moment at which it presses the send button to send the material to Nexus? Uh, I, I don't think I've ever before uh, been faced with an embarrassment of uh, riches where I'm uh, uh, being asked to say how many multiple. All right, but I'm not going to ask that. I'm asking the opposite. That is, what, what, what is the, uh, the process? And the reason I find it important is it seems to me possible from what your opponents have said that what happens at, say, the Post or the Times is there is the analog electronically of the front page. It doesn't have the pictures. It doesn't have the graphs. I don't care about that for the moment. Assume you lose on that one. I have the electronic analog, which is close enough. And then what happens is somebody pushes the send button, and at one instance of time, that electronically is transmitted to Nexus where it's on a chip. Now, all that happens after that, where we have the electronic analog on a chip, is some electronic signals are added by Nexus to parts of the chip so that any user of Nexus who wants to can call it up like any other thing, article by article. Now, I want to know, is is that what happens? My understanding of what happens is that uh, the post mm-hmm. uh, creates uh, a set of article files, each of which are an electronic unit. But creating an article file may be that on a chip there's the electronic analog or on a disk and you add a few other signals. Well. Now, 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 the reason I'm asking this and the reason I think it's important is because it seems to me it might make an enormous difference if the only infringing act is when a user comes in and calls up a file. 
because at that point principles of fair use come into play. And I think principles of fair use might make an enormous difference to the end result. And the reason to get my whole and question out, because I might not have a, another opportunity, is I am disturbed very much by what I call, by way of parody, their Chinese cultural revolution argument. That is, we wipe out the history of the 20th century. And that's an overstatement. But it's not such an overstatement when you think that most school children today will be looking for information on machines. And if it isn't in the database library, D.H. Lawrence, uh, uh, John P. Marquand, or lesser figures, will simply disappear because it's too expensive for them to locate each heir and to get the copyright permission to put the article on the machine. All right, I've got it all out. Now I'd like your response. <laughs> Do I get one sentence or two? I'd like to take as long as you'd like, and I won't interrupt further. Uh, first of all, the uh, — it, it is enormously different, I would suggest, to uh, break down and disaggregate uh, a collective and into component parts uh, when uh, the component parts are uh, the copyright property of someone else and uh, to, prov to take the first and necessary step for those component parts to be exploited as uh, individual freestanding works uh, and with the purpose of uh, uh, pr providing that they will be exploited uh, as uh, freestanding works. The every step from the, the first step taken by the newspapers in breaking this down into article files, coding it, uh, providing those article files to Nexus where they are further coded and inputted, uh, not necessarily uh, in sequence, uh, is to create a system uh, in which the article files can be exploited uh, as individual files, uh, as individual articles. Uh, this process is a, a, the print equivalent process of uh, printing each article as an individual article. Uh, which can be combined with any other uh, of a billion articles in uh, a new compilation which has nothing to do with the original collective work or any revised collective work or uh, uh, published uh, by itself, printed and published. Mr. Gold, if you've had a chance to finish your answer, why is that different from selling the newspaper to a library with very detailed indexes, knowing that the library will allow people to come in and make individual copies of individual stories, uh, individual uh, contributions to it? Well, if the library uh, has a it, very elaborate index system and it's part of a huge library. Yeah. Uh, Justice Stevens, all I can say is if the library is part and parcel of copying individual articles, that's a copyright infringement. All it does is provide the information that enables the person to pick and choose what he wants. Well, there are two different questions uh, that it seems to me you're raising. If the library uh, simply gives someone an index and a copy of the paper, and says and has a Xerox machine where the guy can go in and get the particular one. He wants. Uh, the, the the question is uh, whether the library is implicated in uh, providing the duplicating system. The law could not be 
uh, clearer on that. There are elaborate provisions in the Copyright Act uh, with regard to library uh, permitted or created copying for a price. And don't forget, this is all commercialized. Uh, uh, Nexus is not a free service. It is uh, a publishing service creating uh, uh, new copies of uh, these works for uh, — So, the inf- so the, just to be sure I understand, the infringement occurs — I still want to know just when it first — the infringement occurs when the individual makes a selection and then makes a copy of his particular choice. You mean in the library example you're raising? And is it, is it not the same in the, in the electronic situation? Well, no infringement until some individual picks out a particular article that was both part of a revision and part of an original copyright by the author and makes a copy of that without making a copy of the whole revision. Two things, if I can. Uh, the uh, copying of uh, the work onto uh, the disk uh, is one kind of, if, if we're correct, is one kind of uh, copyright infringement. Well, I, thought second, you said, I thought you said earlier that if the whole email was copied in an electronic form, that would be a revision, not an infringement. Are you changing your view on that? No, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I, I don't understand what... You're asking, if the we're we're discussing your newspaper uh, library example, uh, the only infringement uh, is if the library uh, is actively uh, engaged in Facilitating allowing uh, furthering Selling individual articles yeah, and right. for a price. Right. Uh, in yeah. this case, uh, there are multiple infringements before that because. Uh, uh, what's the first one before that? <laughs> the first one is the uh, preparation of the. Uh, article files as separate article files uh, for the purpose of creating an overall uh, uh, compilation of separate article files which are uh, to be exploited as separate article files. Is that analytically different from creating elaborate indices in a print library? Yes. Uh, because it is part and parcel of a process for printing, uh, if you will, for reproducing and distributing uh, separate article files, uh, separate articles as such. If the news, to go back to... It's equivalent in the print media, I guess, would be sending over a package of separate articles which in combination were the Washington Post of that day, but they're sent over as separate articles and each one uh, indexed in such a way as to facilitate the obtaining of those articles without obtaining the rest of the Washington Post. Right, uh, for, for a price for sale. That, not, that is precisely what I... That's, that's why my understanding of the record is they sell it, is, send it over as a bundle. They don't send it over in separate pieces. That's what I wanted to know. They send over a bundle of separate pieces. Uh, well, all right, but, I mean, but suppose it's the exact electronic analog of the morning paper. I mean, if it's the exact electronic an- analog of the morning paper that they send over, I know it's technical, but this is a pretty technical case. And, well, and uh, the, 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 then it seems to me that it is not just sending separate articles. If they send one at 10 in the morning and another at 4 in the afternoon, it might be quite different. Justice Breyer, if, uh, to use Justice Scalia's example, uh, you send to the print shop uh, 
every separate article that appeared in the newspaper uh, and say, print each one up as a separate uh, article to be pervade to the public, uh, given uh, the structure of this act, uh, that is different from saying uh, here is a collective whole, uh, because You have to establish that they are sent over as separate articles. What what constitutes the sending over of them as separate articles? I thought it was the fact that when they're sent over, they they are they are coded and identified separately. Correct. Not as simply one unidentifiable unidentifiable part of the Washington Post of May second. Correct. Each one has a code on it, which enables it to be treated as a separate article. Right. And. the only togetherness, if you will, is that it's our understanding, and this is my understanding of the record, that after the paper is broken down uh, and these article files are created and coded, they are transmitted or streamed as a set of distinguishable article Files, but they are not a unit, uh, an electronic unit of the May 1st paper. They are these separate. That would be quite useless for the purposes right, for which they want it. They, they don't want the New Year, the, the Washington Post of May 2nd. They want the ability to get individual articles. Correct. I, I, this is a purpose of commercial activity. Mr. Cole, before you finish, I would like you to respond to Mr. Tribe's point that on your theory, the microfiche, it would be the same thing. It's equally infringing. We don't believe that the microfiche is equally infringing. Why not? Because it is a, a reproduction of the whole paper in a integral form. Uh, Now, if to the extent that the paper is shown uh, rather than read, you have the whole paper. You can read what you want, but it's a uh, uh, one-to-one relationship between the number of copies that are made and the number that are uh, read or used with as computers, we can it can simultaneously be a bundle and a whole bunch of separate things. It depends on which button we decide to push, whether you want the whole thing or just one. Well, th- that's why the fact that it is uh, that the system is one of articles which can be exploited as articles or in any combination of articles, uh, makes all the difference. It is not uh, a, uh, a set in any real terms Thank you, Mr. of the Cole. works. Mr. Tribe, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Let me first say very clearly, it is not the case that these newspapers disaggregate something and break it down to facilitate copyright violation. It is disaggregated from the word go. That is, when they put together the computer text file that's going to go to the printer, they do it article by article because, as it happens, that's what goes into a newspaper. That exact text, and you'll see it unmistakably in the record, is exactly what is sent no Both indexes. No additional code on it? Well, sometimes indexing codes, but not only for articles. That is, you've got to be able to find this stuff. You can't just wander around inside a computer. And it is the reader's guide to periodicals. That's what we've got here. Whether it is in written form or in index form, it's the same thing. So point one, they don't deliberately disaggregate. Point two, if you look at 349A of the joint appendix, That's one of many places, I just happened to find this one, where they say they're not claiming any contributory or vicarious liability with respect to infringements by end users. 
Their whole theory was putting this stuff in the way that the 20th and 21st centuries has to do it is an infringement. It's really a quite Luddite theory. Their distinction with microfilm is that microfilm is a piece of something. You can see it. Well, what about the CD-ROM then? You can't see it except with a machine. It just looks like it might be Joan Baez singing. But it turns out that it's got volume upon volume of material. There's nothing fancy that's done here to facilitate violation. What they're doing is making the entire bunch of material available. And I didn't hear an answer to Justice Breyer's question. If we read the law the way they propose to read it, and I still don't know the exact moment they think is an infringement and how analytically it differs from Justice Stevens' library example, we're going to have a serious problem with our kids doing homework and with professors of history finding out what happened in the middle of the 20th century. It seems to me that before this court takes a step like that, it should pause. Uh, The case is submitted.